the um, text from Isaiah 44. Um, just reading randomly through this text here. Um, we read um, from verse 6, this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. It kind of sounds like book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it, let him declare it, and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. He's asserting his, the fact that he is actually the master also of history, this great mystery that God knows everything, meaning that he knows uh, not just the things that have happened, but also the things that are going to happen. Verse 8, do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any other God beside me? No, there is no rock. I know not one. And of course, now what he's doing is he's preparing the people of Israel for the fact that they are going to be destroyed as a nation. They're going to be taken away into captivity. And then he is going to promise that they might return. So at the very end of this chapter, he will now invoke the name of Cyrus. And this is before Cyrus was even a king, the great Persian pagan, as Luther would call him, who, uh, as a result of his crushing of the Babylonians, uh, the, the Persian Mede kingdom uh, brought the Babylonian kingdom to an end, and he then gives permission for the Jews to go back and to reestablish themselves in the land of Israel. So their captivity is 70 years. So those who were carried away into captivity, unless they were very, very young, they would remember where they came from. But really there was basically a whole generation that did not know what it was like living in the land of Israel. And he's giving promises here of his ultimate protection and defense of God's people. But uh, Luther, of course, makes much out of, out of these verses, not so much even just what they say to those people, but how they apply to us. So let's begin with the word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, hear our prayers as we come before you today in our study of your word and in consultation with the very wisdom of Martin Luther, who saw so clearly that our righteousness is not our own, but it is given to us through Christ our Lord. Help us to see the scriptures in the right way. Help us to understand your word as it applies to our life and grant us the peace that comes from having a merciful God who has revealed unto us his gospel and enlightened us by his Holy Spirit to the truth of God's peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to extend uh, today our uh, special condolences to the Kinnaman family Back over here in the corner here, Scott Kinnis, Kinneman uh, is one of the editors of the Lutheran Witness. And um, did I say that right? The what? Portal of Prayer. Prayer. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, they, they all look alike. Um, and the, of Portals of Prayer. And, um, and uh, his mother passed away this, this last week. And so there will be, we'll have a, um, a funeral service in the, in the nursing or funeral home uh, today, this afternoon, or tomorrow afternoon at 
3 o'clock, right? Okay. So, um, and uh, also their son, Chris. Uh, Katie is teaching Sunday school, right? So we want to extend our, our um, condolences to you. All right. Now, at our tables, priming the pump. If we were going to look for a good church, what would be our criteria? A good church. It's like Garrison Keeler, where all the women are strong and all the men are good looking and all the children are above average. Number two, what are some of our modern day idols? We're so, we're so illumined. We don't bow down before pieces of silver, but we do bow down between, before a lot of money. Number three, should we compare our beliefs as Christians to those of other religions? Sometimes that upsets people. Should we compare our Lutheran beliefs to the beliefs of other denominations? Number four, why does faith in the righteousness of Christ, we call it our saving righteousness, free us from false religion? Number five, what might Luther mean by the phrase, the devil's martyrs? Number six, does the adoration of relics stand in opposition to faith in Christ? We, on our last uh, Lutheran Heritage Tour, uh, we went to the city of Aachen, and we happened to arrive on a festival where they celebrated it once every seven years, and they bring out all the relics in the um, cathedral there. The cathedral, you know, is a, is a cathedral of Charlemagne, it's uh, one of the most ancient and the most beautiful cathedrals in all of Europe. And uh, they brought out Mary's robe. Now, Mary must have been six foot four and weighed 280 pounds for that robe that we saw. But um, is the adoration of relics something which um, is in keeping with the Christian faith? For what good reason might pastors be inclined to give up preaching the gospel? It's a strange question, isn't it? What is the appeal in a Christian suffering for the sake of Christ? The appeal. What is comforting about the teaching of predestination and what could be terrifying about it? That came, has come up a number of times in this class here recently. And then, of course, why should we praise God? Um, why don't we do this? I will point to a table, and you, you take one question, and then you will have to get up and give a five-minute answer. Okay, one, two, three, four in the back. Go sit, go sit at this table, would you? Five, you go six, seven, eight in the back, nine, ten here. Ha, huh, you think you got away with this? One, two, three, four, and five. Okay? Okay. It was just one question. Everybody, um, uh, I think it's probably a better idea to give you one question than to give you ten, um, because we'd be here all day. Um, we've got a table, one table here and one table there. Um, what's your criteria for a good church? 
Gospels, preached sacraments, rightly administered. You can tell he's a pastor. That's a very, very pastor answer. It's a good one. Um, what did you guys say? They li- uh, re- reading the scriptures and living by it, that you would see a, a church of that kind. I, the reason why I, we would point that out is because you'll see here in, verse, uh, in Luther's commentary on verses 1 through, uh, really 1 through 5 here, he says, the righteousness of God preserves us and our righteousness condemns us. It's already, uh, already I guess you might say, that gospel preaching Therefore, he exhorts and consoles us to abide in Christ. But then he goes on and he's talking about the servant is dry and parched because he lies forsaken in trials. You know, a church that is under the cross looks differently than a church that is, I guess you might call it in the eyes of the world, successful. And then he goes on in verse 5, he says, he will call himself by the name of Jacob. He said, the, um, he said, the one who was formerly not called Jacob, those who were not my people, I will call my people. He refers to Romans 9. The Gentiles are given these titles to establish them as members of the church and to strengthen us against the attacks of Satan. If Paul had not in this way picked out this passage as applying to the church, we could not withstand the Jews. What, he, what he's driving at is that we're Gentiles... You know, it's, it's kind of like um, we were over in Germany and we went to this, uh, this church in Hammondsburg and, and uh, I, I don't know what, I guess sometimes even the churches over, in, uh, even our sister congregations or at Selk congregations over in Germany got kind of infused with some of this church growth, um, you know, happy clappy stuff that we've talked about. And the, it just so happened that the Sunday that we were there, the, the other pastor was just kind of bowing his head, kind of sad like this, but they had, they, they were trying to, they, had, they were going to sing this song called Father Abraham. And watching Germans singing Father Abraham, Father Abraham had many sons, but watching Germans do that is not the most pleasant thing in the world. They don't quite do it with too much enthusiasm, and they're not very coordinated. <laughs> but one of our kids in our group, as we're watching this, said, turned to me and he said, do they really do this over here? He thought that maybe everybody in Germany worshiped that way. Um, you, you, you say, is this, is this church? Is this natural? Is this what it is that the church looks like? The church under the cross what does he say here? He said, when the Jews look at us, what do they have? They have history and time and tradition. They have got the priesthood. They have got all these rites. They have the temple in Jerusalem. They have all these things. And what did we have when we came along as Gentiles? We're just, we're, we're, we, are, we, are the, we are the alien people. We're the people who, have, who are new to this thing that lasts for thousands and thousands of years. Imagine. Well, when you look for a church, you have to look for the word of the gospel, and oftentimes that word of the gospel is underneath a cross. We must not get this. We're, the sermon title today, 
we don't think like men, we must think like God. So, um, did, has anybody here seen the movie The Beauty and the Beast? Okay, there are at least a few people here that are under the age of 10. Um, <laughs> maybe you had kids under that age, right? Yeah, well, here's, here's this beast, right? And somehow she has to fall in love with this beast. He is ghastly. But when she falls in love with him, right, that this breaks the so-called spell, this is the analogy by that this is the church. We're the ugly ones. We're the beasts. And when we have to see, they have to, somebody has to see through to the gospel, through the gospel, see what we are, then all of a sudden, we're no longer the beast. Question number two. Some of our modern day idols. Money, celebrities, professional athletes. Go ahead, Bill. Just give me an idol. Yeah, um, the, uh, anything that to us takes precedence over God himself, right? So you shall have no other gods. You should fear, love, and trust in God alone. Anything that we love more than God, which is usually measured by what we are willing to sacrifice for the cause, become our idols. We... There's, so, there's a huge amount of idolatry in our world today, and it comes in various, various different forms. All you have to do is pick up a magazine, and you realize that advertisement in great part is driven by idolatry because they make it's a promise that's being made. If you possess this thing, your life will be better or happier. Who's number two here? You guys? Okay, what do you say? Bubs, okay, yeah, hamburgers at Bubs. That's <laughs> Politicians. I, there, I guess there are d demonic idols. Um, yeah. <laughs> then, uh, yeah. But, uh, the, you know, the way that um, here you are, a, a football coach, and you probably depend upon all these kids being experienced when they get to your team, right? But man alive, what that whole apparatuses out there that is athletics. It's just, I, I mean, unbelievable. Uh, and, and we, those of us who are old, um, we had basically after school intramurals and we had summertime athletics. So we basically did stuff all summer long. Every morning was baseball or something like that. But that every conflict on Sunday morning, the, 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 the sports that are taking place on weekends and Sundays, and even the school events, uh, uh, every single night is taken up with school events with teachers threatening kids without, uh, to not have good grades if they don't attend and participate. I mean, it's, it's what, is, what, what do they think that they're going to get? Are we all going to become professional athletes? Well, af after five years, our bodies are all worn out anyway, right? If you play professional sports. I don't know. I mean, that's idols, modern day. 
Three, should we compare our beliefs as Christians to those of other religions? Should we compare our Lutheran beliefs to the beliefs of other denominations? What did you guys say? Yeah, yeah, I must be right, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. An affirmation of the fact that pastors are always doing it, especially, but um, thank you for not just saying yes, because um, that was an easy one to say. Um, what did you guys think? <laughs> Ditto. All right. Well, that's, there we go. By the, yeah. Okay. Well, we, I think we probably, perhaps more so sometimes than other denominations, we do do, we do, do that. We're going to talk a little bit about, hopefully we'll have some time to see what Luther says about that. Does the adoration of relics stand in opposition to faith in Christ? Back table there. What's that? Did I get the wrong? Oh, sorry, number four. I, I always... It's always a good thing when people believe that the teacher is right because then they go, uh, uh, uh. Okay, number four, why does faith in the righteousness of Christ, our saving righteousness, free us from false religion? Right. So it is a part of our sinful nature to rely upon. And then every other false religion in the world ultimately teaches works righteousness, so it, does, it should free us from false religion because if you don't hear the voice of the gospel, then you'll know that this is not right. And there, there are going to be a lot of, there's a kind of an idolatry that masks that in false religion. Um, four, would you guys, uh, are you dittoing too? Yeah, so, so that was more easily recognized. Uh, uh, the gospel kind of freed you up to see that. So is that, do we, we have concurrence at that table or is there a great division? <laughs> no, no, we like false religions. Um, okay, um, well, uh, five, what might Luther mean by the phrase the devil's martyrs? You guys here? Okay, um, it, so in other words, it is, is it a good phrase or a bad phrase? If we were, if we were, if we were the devil's martyrs, would that be a good or a bad thing? Okay, okay. Yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, we're going to turn, twist it just a little bit and see what Luther says about it. Luther, what, what he was partially driving at is that he saw people like the, what he calls the Carthusians who 
saw suffering as a way of being able to make themselves important to God. And so in their suffering where they were literally dying from things like starvation or dying from exposure, they were actually serving the devil in this false piety, this, this suffering, and so he called them the devil's martyrs. But I'm with you there with respect to all being in Christ. And that therefore, um, we could maybe take it in a different way. Uh, does the adoration of relics stand in opposition to... Oops, wait a minute, five? Are you guys back there? Way back there. Did we miss you? Oh, okay. Well, all right. Well, she's getting another cup of coffee. Yeah. Do you, do you want to add anything to that? You could turn... Right, good, yeah. You notice that voice, uh, that's a, that voice works really well in vacation Bible school. We don't need any, any loud microphones. She's, she's been our leader out here for years now. Does the adoration of relics stand in opposition to faith in Christ? That's six, right? We had right, one, two, three, four, five, six. You guys. Yes. <laughs> okay, well... Good. Well, Luther will actually have a quote where he talks about what, how St. Thomas Aquinas uh, can, in a sense, made things holy. That became kind of relics, right, or something like that. What is the appeal in a Christian's suffering for the sake of Christ? What is the appeal? Oh, we're out of tables over there, so it's back to you guys there. Am I, you know, okay, seven, who, you, well, for what good reason might pastors be inclined to give up preaching the gospel? <laughs> All right, well, we'll, we'll talk, We're, it's obviously it's in quotation marks, uh, the so-called good. It's because, Luther will say this, it's, it's because of members like this who try to be able to make statements like that, that pastors decide that they want to go play golf, I think. Um, what, is the, um, what is the appeal in a Christian suffering for the sake of Christ? Who's number eight? I mean, I guess back there, okay. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, uh, I guess what we'll, we'll do is we'll kind of see at what point how, how Luther quite turns that. But from a standpoint, we, we do have a, I mean, we have a song that, um, in thy service pain is pleasure. It's a kind of a strange statement. But suffering for the sake of Christ actually becomes something which is for us as Christians an honor. But... Um, there can also be, if you're a works-righteous person, 
there can be an appeal to suffering as though if suffering becomes merit, right, then all of a sudden it becomes bad suffering, or even though it appears to be good. But we'll catch that later. What is comforting about the oh, teaching of predestination, what could be terrifying? Uh, predestination. Now that was a uh, that was a question right up your alley, wasn't it? With all those relatives in the in the Calvinistic traditions, um, why should we praise God? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the command, right? Whether it be from God or otherwise. But you know, we don't oftentimes you know we we do sometimes say you know look just. Look at these wonderful blessings that God has bestowed upon us. How could we not praise Him? But there are times in which we, go, we do go through suffering and we still are called upon to praise God and sometimes we just simply have to say we're commanded to praise God. We should. That's a part of our fulfillment of the commandments. But the motivation for that is gratitude for God's grace. All right. Um, moving quickly, um, let's, uh, let's move on down to... Um, Verse 8, although the Jews, he said, are opposed to us and say that we have a new worship and religion, I am nevertheless the same ancient God, Luther says, abide in me, you are my witnesses. There's much value in recalling the past. This is what Moses did. Remember, he says that the Lord brought you forth out of the iron furnace of Egypt. So intense is Satan's heat that he would often have offended me, Martin Luther, in my own teaching if I had not, by way of contrast, compared my pure teaching with the papistic monstrosities that had been cast down. Lay them side by side and teach them, inculcate them by preaching. Antitheses possess much authority. What he's driving at is, yeah, we do have to compare. We have to show in, uh, what God's Word teaches and what these other churches teach. And uh, if people think, well, we should just talk about the things we have in common, that's not always the case. Now, there's a, there's a place for that, but we should be people who are aware of what other churches teach. Verse 9. Their witnesses do not see. He says, the images are like those who make them. Uh, is rather interesting. As their God is, such is their teaching and their religion. That, in other words, false religion creates a religion in its own image. Work righteousness is the fountain and the source of all outward idols. In our nature, we look at God as, as through painted glass. I think today we would say a mirror, right? And we see God in conformity with our thought. Yeah, somebody um, asked me this last week. It was an African-American woman. She said to me, why are there so many different churches? Why, so many, why are there so many different denominations? Well, because there's a lot of painted glass. We paint God, we create God in our own image. So that's why you would oftentimes find 
that there are as many religions as there are people who are looking into the glass. He says, so the self-righteous look at God through a glass. Thus, the sacramentarians, these are the people who denied the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, see God as a manufacturer of symbols, you know, rather than realities, as one who operates with signs because they look at God through a glass. However, one who looks at God by faith knows that God does not regard him because of his righteousness, but for the sake of his own grace. So, you know, the, the ways of man versus the ways of God. We create gods in our own image. We look into a glass. We think what's right to us. We use our own human reason. So, um, he goes on here and he talks a little bit more about this idolatry. But look at in the summary, the, the second sentence there. He says, therefore, let those who will remain certain in the Catholic religion. Does that scare you? Um, a lot of times, you know, when we're saying the Athanasian Creed and they say the Catholic religion is this and this, all the Lutherans, their heads snap up. What? The Catholic religion? But this is Catholic with a small c, which means, now some have said universal, it, the, the, the religion that has always been the religion, the same God, the same teachings, but also it can mean the orthodox religion, that religion which teaches God's word in its truth and purity. So it's not a bad word. Roman Catholic is different than Catholic. But therefore let those who will remain certain in the Catholic religion remain certain in the righteousness of faith without all works. Where this article is preserved, the Holy Spirit is present to preserve you. And where this article is lost, we soon fall. For Luther, that fulcrum, that hub of the wheel, was that our righteousness is in Christ and Christ alone we are not going to become righteous by our works, deeds, actions, whatever it might be. It is Christ and Christ alone. Luther said, you lose that. You, you take out the hub of the wheel, you ain't got a good wheel. So it's a, it's, it's a universal thing. Okay, um, verse 12. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water. He says, this must be applied to all the self-righteous who toil and deprive themselves of food and drink and exhaust their strength in a matter that is of no consequence. They are the devil's martyrs. They work harder to get to hell than to heaven, than we to heaven. Although Christians are always greatly vexed by the cross, they walk with a quiet conscience. But the others wear themselves out for nothing with their endless endeavors so our ironsmiths are the supreme self-righteous, the iron Carthusians who occupy themselves with many stupidities and endless toils to the point of madness. And many of the religious kill themselves through excessive observance, abstinence, and vigils. As St. Paul reproaches that type of endeavor which has to do with angels. Um, this is uh, when we were... We had our youth event at a, at a monastery, and they said, uh, this was uh, three, almost three years ago, they said many of the monks died, never even made it to the age of 50, because of you know, the, the, 
the cold cells. They were getting, they were sick. They weren't eating enough food. They were engaging in these long vigils. They didn't have warm enough clothing and such. And they literally, this was this was something they were doing to gain their salvation. And you can just see Luther coming along, going, "This is stupidity. This is just stupidity." And then look what he says about himself. And I, Martin Luther, would have killed myself if the light of the gospel had not come, and so on and so forth. So he's talking, I mean, we, we today, the softness of our world today, we just don't see this really truly happening. But boy, it was, this, this permeated the mind, mindset of the culture of that day. Unless you were out there suffering in a monastery, you probably did not have a very good chance to make it without going through a lot of time in purgatory. The, um, there was a ski resort out in Colorado called that. And it, they had a ski run called Lower Hades. And it was Lower Hades. Let me tell you, if you get down, it was just like this. Okay, verse 15. He takes part of it and warms himself. This is a part of the, of the, of the ridicule that they had. You know, the, a guy makes an idol. He takes the wood, he carves it into an idol, and then he takes what's left over and he puts it into the fire and he warms himself by it. Now, how in the world could you be worshiping something that is actually burning up next to you, just keeping you warm? And Luther mocks this, but he goes on to mock what they were doing in his day. He said, this is certain folly which is to be ridiculed. The same thing happens to us. Thomas, this is Thomas Aquinas, writes that the wood of the cross should be adored, adored by means of hyperdulia, that is, lesser worship. That, see, this, this is the, how they got around this idea of things being sacred. Hyperdulia. Oh, you're not worshiping per se. It's just kind of a form of worship that kind of helps you maybe in your worship of God. So, he says... Therefore, the prophet rebukes these idolaters. Here they make a god out of vestment, a girdle. That's not the kind that women used to wear, but what you had wrapped around. A rope, things which, he says, a farmer uses for an amulet. Now, he's, what he was driving at is that, what, you put on these vestments, and now all of a sudden, these vestments, you just touch the helm of that garment. You uh, put it, take a rope and you put it around yourself and that rope now is sacred and it's something that has holiness attached to it. This is idolatry. It's what Thomas Aquinas had kind of led them this direction by saying there's hyperdulia. Dulos, uh, dulia is what? Worship? Yeah. Hyper, hyper. It's uh, added to it. All right. Um, Boy, we just wouldn't, wouldn't, don't we wish that we had started a little earlier? But 17, deliver me. Therefore, beware that you cling to grace alone and to faith and do not ascribe righteousness to external creatures. In addition, I admonish you not to be deceived by the fallacies of the Anabaptists who say that baptism is external water and nothing but water since they omit the words of God connected with water. Now, why, do, why does he bring this up? 
as the Lutherans were saying, this is stupid that you're, that you're turning things like ropes and vestments into things that should be worshipped, if you will, they, the Anabaptists came along and said, well, you worship water. Luther says it's different because God's word is attached to that water. God's word isn't attached to vestments. God's word is not attached to ropes. So don't be deceived when we say hyperdulia, we're not, we're not even worshiping the water. It's not that what that is, but it's the word that is in the water that makes us different. And so he condemns the Anabaptists for their view on that denied the efficacy of baptism. All right. Um, 21. Remember these things. He says, It is safer to rely on the mercy of God, which certainly exists, than to depend on uncertain works. So this is, um, like I said in the sermon today, you know, God gives us his law, but if you want to be justified by the law, you're never going to ever come to a certainty of your salvation. It's far better to rely upon the mercy of God. He says, it's always better to base one's case on grace rather than on righteousness, since even our righteousness is nothing but sin. See, we are, even a person who thinks that they could be saved by their works, their works are tainted with sin. There is no such thing as a good work that we do which is good on its own. You think about what that means. Doesn't it make us all equal? Doesn't it make, I mean, there's, there's no boasting in anything that we do before God. Whatever it is that we do, we, it might be the most kind thing you could imagine. And it's filled with sin. So he said, remember Israel, because very great and repeated danger follows upon forgetfulness of grace. Satan will more easily put up with all other articles than this one concerning the forgiveness of sins. So it happens, and is happening to us today on the part of the enthusiasts. And now we're going after them. These are the people who think that the Holy Spirit is given to them apart from the Word of God. These are you know, the ones who are having visions and God's talking to them all the time. Who desire to keep us busy with other questions so that they may forget this article. Yeah, if the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, they're going to want to start off a conversation talking to you about how it is that if you get blood transfusions, you're committing a sin against God. And you go, wait a minute, a blood transfusion, you want me to debate blood transfusions with you? When was the last time you ate a good steak? Did you, do you have blood in your steak usually when you eat it? Or do you like yours well done? No comment. All right. Um, you, you, you take off on these side roads, and that's exactly what they want. They don't want to talk about how a man is justified before God. They don't want to go to Romans and talk about justification by grace through faith. They want to talk about other things. So when people, you'll, you'll start talking to people about religion, and the first thing that they'll do is they'll take you in a different direction. The African-American lady that I was talking to, she says to me, can you tell me, um, it, it, when Jesus says that you should go into your closet and pray, does he really mean that you should go into your closet and pray? 
Now, I'm sure that this was perplexing her, this question. I said, it's a figure of speech. It just means that you're, suppo you're not supposed to parade your piety before, before men. But for her, that was a bigger question than saying, you know, I was wondering, how am I justified before God? So you have to take and you have to steer the ship and you've got to go this direction and you've got to take them back always to this question. Same thing with the Mormons. Mormons are going to, do you smoke, Monahan? Do you smoke just when you get mad? It just comes right off the top of your head, doesn't it? <laughs> okay. We're almost there. Verse 22, return to me, the one who removes sin. God recalls us from my idolatry and ungodliness. He says, believe in me, cling to me. Okay, sing, O heavens. This is part of the praise of God that, that Joel was talking about. This is a song and an ovation where the voice bursts forth publicly. Sing praises about that, Lord, O heavens above and O earth beneath. You who are in heaven and on earth. This is where let Wittenberg, that is, the inhabitants of Wittenberg, sing. Or as the Germans would say, Wittenberg. Who formed you from the womb. This is a thunderbolt against free will. For he says, and here's the, this is, has to do with predestination. While you were yet in the womb and had acquired nothing by merits, I was already concerned about you. Away with our boasting if we boast that we have acquired salvation by our own endeavor. Here you see everything happens to us by predestination when we are still in our mother's womb. That's what Paul says. God did it ahead of time so that we might never believe that by our works we have obtained God's favor. This is all from God. Who says of Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. And then he, this is roughly where he's now turning and he's now beginning to give them comfort and consolation that they are going to be restored back again after they've been taken into captivity. Um, and then verse 27 at the very end here, who says to the deep, here he exhorts them not to be disturbed by the wretchedness of these things but to cling to the firm promises. Such weaknesses, difficulties, and trials come to us every day from tyrants on one side and from enthusiasts on the other. Everything is going to rack and ruin. I, I like to end a sermon like that. Everything is going to rack and ruin. But what does he say? That the promise is there. Who says of Cyrus... We properly call him that. In Hebrew, the name is Koresh. It is as if God were saying, I am the one who raises up the most powerful monarch, Cyrus, the king of the Persians. Him I will raise up, and he must do everything by my authority. Now the prophet speaks great prophecies concerning pagan king Cyrus. This is a unique pagan king, famed even in the Holy Scriptures. It is a marvelous thing that the Scriptures speak of this pagan king by name, so long before his time. Yeah. And of course, liberal scholarship today would say, oh, he wasn't speaking about the king that was to come. He was speaking actually after the king came as though he were going to yet come. And you go, well, 
Not really. Um, all right. Um, well, you've answered all the questions, right? And you all feel very comforted in the fact that we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ. That is the sure foundation of our lives. All right. Um, let's close with benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.